Hey, welcome to the UWA Alumni Podcast. My name's Harry Sanderson, and I'm here with Liam Elphick, uh, lecturer at the UWA Law School. Liam, Hi. hello. Hi, Harry. Thanks for being with us today. Um, so yeah, we'll crack right into the interview. Um, so you are a UWA graduate. Do you want to just talk a bit about your areas of study at UWA and, and your sort of journey um, to where you are now? Yeah, sure. So uh, I grew up in Perth, finished school in 2009 and came straight to UWA to start a double degree in Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Laws. I took seven years to do that. It's supposed to be six, but I took some extra time and had a semester off. So Cool. Um, so I finished up at the end of 2016 for my studies. So yeah, I majored in political science and international relations in my arts degree. Right. And then uh, did you always know that you wanted to go into law? Ooh. No, no, I definitely didn't. I think I started law because um, coming out of school, I just had to pick something to do and I liked words mm-hmm. and I liked arguing and still do. Mm-hmm. Good. So I decided to do law from the start. Um, probably halfway through my degree, I didn't think I wanted to pursue law and I, I, I took half a semester to pursue honours in politics instead mm-hmm. and then quickly realised from that that actually law was the thing I wanted to do. So mm-hmm. it was by doing something else that I um, decided I wanted to go into law um, and particularly into academia. Mm-hmm. And then, so when did you graduate? It's the end of 2016. End of 2016. And then, so what was your path after that? So after that, um, January straight after, so only about a month off, um, I started as associate to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Western Australia, mm-hmm. uh, the Honourable Wayne Martin, who has just announced his retirement, so he'll be stepping down in July. Mm-hmm. Um, and I filled that role for the next six months after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then was offered to to come back to UWA as a full-time academic in the law school uh, by our dean, Natalie Skeed. So I accepted that offer and have been in that role ever since then. Mm-hmm. Um, so did, is teaching something you sort of always had an idea that you'd go into or wanted to go into? Yeah, definitely. I started teaching in, I think, maybe the start of my fourth year of, of actually of studying. Okay. So we have an undergraduate major here called business law in the commerce degree. Mm-hmm. And um, I still remember one of my colleagues now, Kate Offer, had heard from another colleague, Peter Sinden, that they needed someone to, to take on some tutes last minute in mm-hmm. introduction to law. So it would been back in 2013. Wow. Um, just walking around the hallway saying he needed a tutor, shouting from the rooftop, trying to find someone like that. Yeah. And as it happens, Kate was just walking past, heard about it. I think we were catching up for coffee or something, and she told me... Um, and I took up those tutes. So since then, I've taught every single semester well. at UWA, um, either in law or a couple of semesters in politics. And yeah, I think ever since I first stepped into the classroom as a teacher, that's what I've wanted to uh, pursue. It's been an incredible experience to to see students grow and develop and learn things in front of you. Um, so it's always been a passion of mine. Right. And so you describe yourself as an academic. I'm always interested... What is that sort of balance between your own kind of independent scholarship and research, as your learning, if you will, and then your teaching? How do they sort of interact with each other? Mm, that's a really good question. Usually Thank when you. you're um, a junior academic, there might not be as much link between them as you'd like. Mm-hmm. So the end game, I think, in academia, certainly in, uh, in legal academia, is to teach in the areas that you research in and that you're most interested in. Mm-hmm. So your research is always going to be something you choose to do. Um, areas of interest that you want to pursue more so if you can teach those areas that's great mm-hmm. when you're starting out not that easy mm-hmm. so um, you often have to to teach units that um, the law school in question just might not have capacity yeah to teach or have anyone else to teach or units that people don't like teaching and are mm-hmm. left over so that's often the case um, I've been a little bit lucky in that 
I teach Introduction to Law, which has a bit of uh, taught law in it, which is mm-hmm. part of my research, um, and some other introductory units. So I haven't been sort of pegged with some difficult units in that regard. But yeah, for instance, I taught land law last year and I've never researched in that. So there can mm-hmm. be a bit of a difference between the two. Yeah. You wrote an article on, on teaching, on the idea of teaching um, specifically law, and you had an interesting sentence, I think, to close, which was... Um, it's time for us to adapt to new ways of learning and sell the experience of higher education and legal education to our students. It could be the experience of a lifetime for so, for so many of those we teach, but only if we make it so. I think that's really interesting because in the one hand there, you're saying um, it's, it's the value of a lifetime. Uh, it's the experience of a lifetime, which I think obviously shows your kind of emphasis on teaching, which, which you've just stated and I think is really important. But then secondly, it, it has that idea of interve- in innovation and how we can innovate. Um, so I wanted to sort of put it to you. How, how do you innovate? Yeah, that's a really good question, a big question. Um, so my, my focus in teaching is what in the literature would be called student-centered learning, um, which is the idea that students should have more of an input, more of a say in the ways they learn. Mm-hmm. Usually by the time you get to university, you have more of an idea of how you learn best, particularly after going through um, school. And, mm-hmm. and in, in our law school now, it's postgraduate, so even more so. Mm-hmm. So everyone knows to some extent how they learn best and what works for them. So student-centered learning is about giving students the opportunity uh, to do so. So one way in which I've innovated for this um, is creating an exercise called the WED exercise, Mm -hmm. W-E-D, which stands for want, expect, don't Mm -hmm. want. So in the the first class of each semester, I, I break students up into groups of four or five and ask them to consider in these tutorials or in these classes this semester, what's one thing you want to get out of them? What's an expectation you have? Just a minimum level we need to meet as a class, as a teacher, as fellow students. And then what's one thing you don't want to see, which is usually um, experiences they've had of other students talking over them or students Mm -hmm. dominating discussions or or that sort of idea. So then we come back as a class, I write these up on the the whiteboard Mm -hmm. and I ask the whole class if they want to agree to these as their set of um, rules or boundaries for the semester and inevitably they always say yes. So this actually means that I teach according to that for that semester for that tutor group. Mm -hmm. So one group starting at 10am might be taught quite differently to the 11am group if they wanted to be taught differently. So I try and give students the chance to um, outline and explain how they would best like to be taught in that semester. So that's one example of how I do it. Yeah. And then what about... um in, in lectures, because I know lecture attendance, I think, was the subject of that article and is a problem with attendance now that everything is, is done online. Is it difficult when there isn't that, that immediate relationship to sort of incentivize or innovate in a, in a lecture setting, which I suppose is more kind of structurally traditional, just sort of speaking, speaking and listening? Yeah, lectures are really hard. Um, I find shoots easier to innovate in because you have 15 mm. students in front of you. Yeah. Usually there's some sort of participation mark, so they... Um, tend to actually turn up. <laughs> Lectures are quite hard because they're big and because people don't turn up, so you have yep. both problems. So one unit I do, which is Introduction to Law, has 600 students. Wow. So no matter what the level of attendance each week, there's um, a couple of hundred students in attendance. So it's very hard to sort of um, split students up into groups, yep. to engage them with online activities, to engage them with polling, um, to use videos to assist their learning or problem questions. Like There's a range of techniques you can use in tutorials that don't work as well mm-hmm. when you have a big lecture theatre. So um, I try and get around that in some ways by starting lectures off with a video just to sort of introduce the topic to students. Mm-hmm. Usually some sort of pop culture reference, um, depending on whatever TV show is big at the time. Yep. Um, 
and get students thinking about it. And then throughout the class, I try and use this uh, software called Poll Everywhere, which mm-hmm. has been yep. used by other people before. Kate Offley introduced me to that, um, which is where you pose a question um, online and students can then use their phone or the laptop, whatever it might be, to to send in their answers. Mm-hmm. And they see the answers come up on the screen in front of them in the lecture theatre. Um, and then we get them discussing that. So that's a way to break them up into pairs and get them talking. Um, but there's no doubt that lectures are a harder place to innovate in my mind. Yeah. Um, so going back to your sort of personal research interests, um, as I understand it, you do a lot of work on sort of the social and political side of the law, or at least that's what I've read from you. Um, but you want to sort of yeah, speak a bit to your sort of passions or area of interest as an academic? Yeah, sure. So um, I sort of think of myself as having two main areas of interest in research. Mm-hmm. Um, one is torts law, which I talked about. Mm-hmm. So that's just um, the standard sort of duty of care idea that Um, in certain relationships people owe other people duties of care so when we're driving on a road we have a duty of care to other people on the road teachers have duties of care towards their students etc so that's one area of research but I think the main area of my research is uh, anti-discrimination law Mm -hmm. Um, particularly anti-discrimination law that protects uh, LGBTIQA plus people Mm -hmm. um, which has obviously been in in the news a lot in the last few years so Mm -hmm. those are my two main areas of interest and um, I also sort of research both of them in a sporting context where I can. Yeah. So usually if I write on what people call sports law, which is, is not really a distinct area, it's more just um, a context, mm-hmm. usually I write about those two areas in sport as well. Right. So with those those two things, anti, anti-discrimination and sport, there's obviously um, almost like a, a personal facet to those, um, or at least a very social facet. And in your writing, I think it's really interesting because you you're writing about on the one hand this sort of quite objective legal sense and then in, on the other hand this thing that is so sort of socially dense and socially important is it is it difficult to sort of balance those yes definitely <laughs> cool <laughs> um yeah yeah I, I find that so if i'm writing about torts law it's a little bit easier yeah. people do get emotional about it and obviously some pretty horrible things happen when yeah. when people are negligent but mm. but it doesn't sort of personally touch on me as much or touch on um the social or political debates that are happening, yeah, not just in Australia but around the world at the moment. Mm-hmm. When I write about discrimination law and sports law, yeah, there's usually a lot of outrage no matter what anyone says yeah. in any one arena. So, yeah. um, it's it's quite hard to grapple with sometimes. It's it's different writing, for instance, a journal article, mm-hmm. you know, a peer reviewed, um, you know, ten thousand word journal article that. Yeah in the end, not a huge amount of people are going to read and, mm-hmm. and usually the people that read it are academics and they engage with you in a relatively respectful way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very different to writing shorter online pieces, which I've been doing a bit this year yeah. in these areas where um, the entire public mm. may well read and or respond to uh, what you're writing. Th- I find that a lot more difficult um, to deal with and sometimes you just have to switch the comments off and not even yeah. bother with them. Um, depending on the reaction you get yeah. to certain things you say. But I find it personally very important to engage on these issues, mm-hmm. um, not just to write about law in a, an esoteric or academic way, but mm-hmm. to engage with the real debates that are happening, particularly in Australia um, in recent years, and to engage the public in that as much as you can and um, and try and disseminate the information that's important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very noble activity, really. Um so on that uh, sort of, you make the distinction between the public and then and then academics. Maybe just stepping back and, and making it sort of the public and the legal community. 
is there sort of a, a good culture in the legal community of that thing of, of, of sort of talking about anti-discrimination in those specific areas yeah I definitely think so um, yeah. there aren't a huge amount of people that do discrimination law in Australia mm-hmm. in terms of people that actually focus on it there might be about 20 in Australia in total um, and we're all sort of part of one group that meets up quite regularly um, each year but Aside from that, I find that other academics and other lawyers and people in the legal or uh, political community engage with these issues quite well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can include discussions with politicians, which I've had in other, um, other similar sort of um, engagements. Mm-hmm. So you tend to get pretty respectful discussions. People okay. disagree without a shadow of a doubt. Yep. And that's kind of what the law and academia are both built on. So yep. when you combine them, um, disagreement is almost what you want to an extent mm-hmm. um, but it's always done respectfully yeah um, and then in terms of the online articles you know by and large 99% of people are very respectful and do want to learn and do want to hear about what's going on um, and, and to actually engage in that discussion and it's so great that people comment on things and write on things and, and share their views social media and um, a lot of other different websites have certainly allowed that to happen more in the yep. last 10 years than previously was the case mm. Um, it's just that probably 1% or even less that engage yeah. less respectfully that can be um, concerning sometimes. Yeah. And, and sometimes as academics, I think we need to learn to, to know when to step back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to step back from a Twitter debate or comments that are happening on your article or mm-hmm. whatever might be going on. When you're dealing with these more social or political or cultural issues, mm-hmm. it's good to know when to take a seat, sorry, when to take a step back Um and not just throw yourself head in every single time. And yep. some, sometimes it's great to allow other people to have the discussion and not to have to mm-hmm. do it all yourself. Usually when you write something, that's you having your say. Yep. So I think sometimes allowing other people the space to come in and discuss that is better. Yep. Um, so on the yes vote, you obviously wrote quite a bit about that. Um, where are we now with that? What's sort of the aftermath of that? Because it's interesting, there was you know obviously a lot of celebration and then... Um, from sort of an out, outside perspective, someone that's not, um, you know, in the anti-discrimination legal industry, it's it's almost died off um, nearly completely. Sort of, wh- where do you see the current political climate on that? Yes, yeah, it's, it's quite tricky at the moment, I would say. So, so back in November, when um, when the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull was trying to shepherd through the marriage equality legislation. Mm-hmm his concession to effectively get some more votes um, from the right side of his party was to conduct uh, a religious freedom review yep. um, through former Attorney General Philip Ruddick. And that mm-hmm. review has taken place in the last few months. It received over 16,000 submissions. They were due to report on the 31st of March, mm-hmm. but owing to the huge amount of uh, submissions they received, they've delayed that until the 18th of May. Okay. When they report on the 18th of May, that's when the next steps will start happening in this space. So um, the the premise of the review was to, to examine religious freedom in general in Australia, mm-hmm. but it's become very clear through the oral deliberations they've had with, uh, with a group I'm part of and several other people who have been invited to present to the panel mm-hmm. that they are really intent on looking at religious exemptions in anti-discrimination law and religious protection in anti-discrimination law. So that is really their focus. And right. And the, the main context in which this arises is the gay wedding cake mm-hmm. scenario, which I've written to death about and sometimes get sick of the name of. Yeah, um, that was the, in, in America. Yeah, well, it's happened around the world. Yeah. yeah. But um, in the UK and America, there's been quite prominent examples yep. where a, a baker who has strong religious views against uh, same-sex marriage mm-hmm. 
decides or refuses, I should say, refuses to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a prominent case in America right now before mm-hmm. the US Supreme Court. That'll be handed down in the next month or two, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but almost uniformly, all courts have said that this is discrimination. Mm-hmm. So the Ruddock Review is looking at that issue in particular, I believe, and, and considering whether religious exemptions should be broader mm-hmm. uh, to allow, for instance, bakers and other people to refuse service to same-sex weddings. Right. So, might move on now um, to your career in the AFL um, from that. <laughs> career is a strong word. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, um, yeah, maybe you want to speak a bit about that and what you do in the AFL. Yeah, sure. So, um, for the last eight years, I've been an AFL scout for mm-hmm. Port Adelaide, which would be much to the delight of the many West Coast and Fremantle fans that will probably be listening to this. Yep. Um, and for a year before that, I worked for Sydney Swans as well. Mm-hmm. Um so my job over here, we only have usually two or three scouts in WA. That's pretty standard for most AFL teams. Mm-hmm. So my job is to be across the the talent in WA that is um, coming up to their draft year at the end of the year. So the, the kids that are turning 18 this year. Yeah. Um, who will be playing what we call Waffle Colts. Yeah. And also to be across the, the older guys such as um, Tim Kelly, who got drafted last year, who will be playing Waffle League. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, I also watch uh, the AFL players who might be over here who we may have an interest in trading for. Right. Um, and sometimes there may be teams that come over here that we are playing in a week or two and that I, I do a bit of a report on right. back to the club so we can be across some of their strategies leading into the match that we have against them. So, yeah, um, quite a unique job. I don't mm. think many people, obviously, are scouts, but um, it's been a really important part of my life for the last nine years and... I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to do that and to continue to do so. So how did you get into it? How did you play AFL as a student? No, I, I didn't I didn't play much footy. Really? Um, no, no. So, And th- I think there's a bit of a myth. This is kind of like in the law, there's a bit of a myth that you have to have done something yeah. to then be able to, to watch it or yep. analyse it. Yeah. Um, some of the best legal academics I know either weren't lawyers or didn't spend much time as lawyers. And I think the same goes for... Uh, for scouting, if you look at some of the best list managers and recruiting managers in the country, a lot of them didn't play much, if any, yeah. um, professional football. So um, one of my old teachers when I was in high school worked for Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, and we must have spent the better part of my four years with him as my uh, tutor in high school talking about footy. Right. Um, and I always watched it near religiously and still mm-hmm. do. Um, and after I finished school, he, he said to sort of come along to a game or two and just see what it's like. Mm-hmm. So I did that. Um, and end up spending a year with Sydney over here and, and watching games and reporting on them myself. Um, that that position wasn't paid. I was just sort of helping out and seeing what it was like. And I was only 17. Yep. So I didn't know much back then. And then um, Port Adelaide had an opening the next year. Mm-hmm. I got an interview with them um, and, and got the job from there. Wow. Um, and I've been with them for the last eight years um, and have learnt a hell right. of a lot in that time. So touching on sort of your your legal experience in anti-discrimination and the culture there um from an outside perspective again of the afl um there's a bit of a stereotype rightly or wrongly that they're probably very very sort of masculinist and and maybe not so accepting have you seen any of that sort of culture in the afl yeah um in terms of my club port adelaide like there's you couldn't find a more inclusive supportive environment just to speak you from my personal experiences um being gay myself, they've been 
incredibly welcoming of that and, mm-hmm. and I couldn't ask for anything more from them. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case across the whole competition or across any sporting competition. Yeah. I think we still have a way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, often more so with with sort of stamping out fan abuse than anything from the yeah. AFL or from the clubs themselves. Yeah. I think the clubs and the competition itself and the executives that head that up are doing a really good job. But um, sometimes fans go a bit too far with things they're saying. And mm-hmm. we've seen that with the recent case of um, Hannah Mouncey, who's a, a transgender mm-hmm. female yeah. footballer. Yeah. Um, I think the more we can do to stamp out vilification and abuse, the mm-hmm. better. But initiatives such as the, the Pride game between St Kilda and Sydney... The AFLW in general, which has been a, a phenomenal success, mm-hmm. those sort of initiatives are really helping um, further equality and inclusivity and, and a diverse environment. Yeah. There's definitely still some more work that can be done, but we've come a long way from where we were, even when I started, I think, nine years ago. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a really different environment now. Yeah, that's really good to hear. So I just wrap up by talking about basically your future. So your future, maybe if, if you start in the in the AFL, where do you see yourself with sort of scouting? And then maybe if you want to talk about um, the law as well. Yeah, good question. I, yeah, I don't want to cause some reflection. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, if anyone from Puella is listening to this, I'm, I'm going nowhere um, in terms of the club. Yeah. Um, oh, I'd love to keep doing footy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's... Um, it's I call it a side hustle, but it's probably the most important <laughs> side hustle I've ever had. Yeah. Um, and, and just something that I love doing and, and feel so privileged to do because so few people have ever been able to do it. Like, mm-hmm. this, you know, at any given time, we only have maybe 14 scouts in the whole country. Yeah. Um, so I'm very lucky to be able to do that and I hope to keep doing it. Yeah. Um, I'd love to take scouting further mm-hmm. and, and pursue that as much as I can, but that would just depend on opportunities. So mm-hmm. they're quite hard to get in the AFL. It's... Um, it's a really tricky environment to move up in often because the money factor is becoming more important now that we have a cap on, on football spending and yep. and a lot of clubs don't have much money to, to spare mm-hmm. um, to promote or add new people in, in scouting or in list management. So mm. I'll pursue it as best I can. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of academic law, I plan on pursuing my PhD starting next year. Well. And that will be the next big project for me to hopefully finish that within three or four years and sort of use that to kickstart the next stage of my academic career. But Mm -hmm. um, it's really just continuing what I've been doing so far. So engaging as much as I can with these sort of social and and political issues that are important to a a wide range of people, particularly Mm -hmm. important to those who can't um, speak up for themselves as well or who are disadvantaged. Yeah. But also being able to teach as much as I can and, and show my passion for that because I think in the end, Research is important and is always going to be important. Mm-hmm. But the most impact you actually see in person is through teaching. Your research may have more impact, but you never really see that. Yeah. With teaching, you get to see X number of students, like for me, often 200 mm-hmm. per week, and see their development and see the changes that happen. Mm. Um, not in their lives, but in their skills and their knowledge and, and their, um, their ideas and their arguments. So being able to see that and, and help nurture that. Yeah. Uh, will definitely be one of the most important things for me moving forward. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Liam, thanks so much for talking to me. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you for downloading today's podcast. Did you know that UWA has alumni networks in Perth, Albany, Canberra, New York, United Kingdom, Hong Kong, Malaysia and Singapore? You can become an active alumni member and stay connected to your UWA community by visiting the alumni website today.